Hello and welcome to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Jackie Broadhead. And I'm Robert Neal. Hi Rob. Today we're talking about something slightly different. We're not talking about the movement of people, but the movement of money. Why was that something that you wanted us to chat about? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that we're actually talking about something which is about the movement of, of, of people and the movement of money. I mean, so remittances, which is what we're talking about in today's episode, are, for those of you who haven't be, who aren't acquainted with the phrase, this is basically money that is sent by migrants to their friends and families in other countries. And it's quite easy to think of remittances as a sort of relatively small scale thing, something that's, uh, you know, not a massive deal. It's just, you know, people helping out their family and friends, as we were saying. But in fact, this is a ginormous, ginormous contribution to poverty alleviation. It's a ginormous contribution to the global economy as a whole. Um, to the extent, I mean, we, we know that, you know, that remittances that are recorded are somewhere over $600 billion a year. And the view is that, that that sum is vastly bigger than that because there's so much of this that isn't recorded. And so we're talking about probably sums of in excess of a trillion dollars per year. I mean, and so this is an absolutely colossal thing. And that's a massive factor in the motivations of migrants. So why migrant, why people move in the first place and the impact of migration generally. So it's kind of the elephant in the room as far as migration is concerned and something that we commonly forget to talk about so yeah it's a a big deal I think. It's the idea that you know we're very focused on human mobility researchers looking at these kind of topics but other transfers so transfer of money being probably the most significant but also transfers that happen kind of formally but also informally they can tell us quite a lot about the nature of migration that maybe we don't get just from looking at kind of the flows and arrivals of people. We're getting a sense of the sort of of some of the links between countries, both uh, traditional migration routes, but also perhaps some of the migration routes that aren't so so common or so visible. We can see those through flows of of money in a way that perhaps we don't see from other data would you agree with that yeah i think i think that's absolutely right such an interesting area of study because it works in such a different way to tracking policy interventions or things that are very visible on the surface and one of the things that really intrigued me that you mentioned from the conversation rob was that the uk um, actually receives quite a lot of remittances as well as being a country from which people kind of send remittances there's a lot of cliches associated with remittances, basically. There's a lot of presumptions that people make that are so far from reality. And this idea that essentially, yeah, remittances is money sent from a rich country to a poor country by somebody who's moved from the poor country are, you know, is, I mean, of course, it happens a lot that way, but that's by no means the whole story. I think we probably just have to finish by saying that we're recording this on the hottest day of the year. So far, we hope uh, the hottest day of the year. I think, you know, you can't fail to reflect upon questions of climate mobility and the ways in which the intersection between the movement of money and uh, income flows will be affected by these changes in climate um, migration and, and movement of people as a consequence of the, of the climate emergency. 
yeah, I think that's that's a fair point, Jackie. And I mean, I do think that sitting in a sitting in a darkened room when it's over forty degrees outside does hammer home just how brutal the climate emergency really is. And I think that and and what one of the things that that is going to be essential for huge numbers of people is support when they have to become mobile as a result of what's going of, of what is unfolding globally at the moment and remittances are going to be a key part of that whilst that might seem like a slightly depressing note on a more positive note we're really delighted to have such a fantastic panel who are able to kind of share some of the research base arising out of a better understanding of remittances and what the impacts of those might be absolutely um and we are delighted to be joined today by Dilip Ratha, who's the head of the Global Knowledge Partnership for Migration and Development, or NOMAD, and lead economist for migration, remittances and social protection uh, and jobs global practice at the World Bank. And by Professor Carlos Vargas Silva, who is the director of the Centre on Migration Policy and Society, or Compass, the very building from which we are doing this recording, or from which at least some of us are doing this recording. Um, so Carlos and Dilip, uh, welcome and thank you for joining us. If I can start off, uh, Dilip, you are probably the world expert on remittances. Um, you also did a really fantastic TED talk a little while ago where you explained how your own pathway in life has actually been fundamentally shaped by remittances. So could I start by asking you to just recap those experiences a little bit and share something about your journey to where you are now? Well, thank you. Um, yes, uh, you know, the story of uh, Almost uh, everyone who has been uh, away from home to study or to work, uh, many of us to simply uh, pursue higher studies, we have experience with receiving remittances from our parents. And uh, later on, one also sends money home um, to support the others. And, uh, you know, it, it happens at, at every level. And so, uh, yes, I have had a long experience with receiving money and sending money. And in the, in the years when I was um, in, a, in a village and uh, went to uh, study in the nearby town, money uh, was sent to me by my father uh, by money order. And uh, sometimes uh, I believe I have received some currency notes as well inside an envelope a letter, a regular mail. Now, that story of um, receiving money and then uh, later on as I uh, started working, and even before I started working, I was um, uh, studying again. I came to the U.S. as a student. I, I used to send money to my my brother and my father in my village. And... Um, uh, Surprisingly, my, my village is one of those um, uh, did not have electricity, neither a phone. And um, it used to take uh, 10 days or so for a letter to arrive uh, from the U.S. to my village. And a simple conversation like, are you OK or did you receive the money uh, used to take about a month uh, on average. So you had to plan things ahead of time to manage things. And it always didn't work, actually. Sometimes it worked, and many times it didn't even work. So that's the story. Well, so 
So we yeah we can see then from the, from your personal perspective and your experience that remittances have remittances have been you know, fairly life changing. They've supported you in your education and then helped you to support your own family, which is obviously fantastic. But what about the best ways? I mean, what do you think the best ways are to ensure that remittances actually benefit people the most? And and from that point of view, I I, I think not just migrants in receiving so migrants who are receiving the remittances but also those people who are actually sending those remittances as well yes i think uh, uh, you know the process is that uh, the migrant uh, does receive support from the family to migrate um, and then he or she goes away sends money home to support the family and uh, that process goes on for life and sometimes it goes beyond one's life to second generation and third generation now we also know an important fact that um, when the family back home is in more of a difficulty because of let's say um, a, a natural disaster flooding or earthquake or perhaps a death in the family or sometimes happy occasions like uh, uh, a birth of a child or a wedding that's the kind of time when the family needs more money more help that's when more money is sent so remittances tend to be in that sense counter cyclical to the recipient family or the recipient country's economic situation economic cycle so remittances help elevate somebody um out of the poverty cycle and remittances also prevent the occasions when the family might fall back into the poverty cycle that's fantastic i mean carlos i'd like to just get you to jump in on this as well if you don't mind i mean in terms of thinking about what you think the the, the best ways to ensure that remittances deliver the best benefits and and, and again like not just to not just to the recipient countries but also to sending countries what do you, do you have a view on that well, in some ways, uh, as Dilip was saying, remittances play a, a lot of roles for, for receiving uh, countries and sending countries and, and migrants uh, themselves. Uh, one of the aspects about remittances that I always highlight uh, as important is this idea of risk diversification, which also Dilip, in, in some ways, was uh, highlighting. Uh, so if you have two families across two locations and they're pooling resources, then the possibility of entering a business that in some ways is risky, any business is risky, you have to take some initial risk, then it's easier if you have that, uh, that, that uh, pooling of resources across countries. I think, I think that will benefit both uh, migrants in their destination countries and families uh, back home. Now, you talk also about the idea of protecting these flows. How do we protect these flows? I think one of the, of the principles here is that we are talking about flows uh, between mainly individuals and their families. So these are private flows, and it's important to recognize that, that these, that these family members transferring to, to, to each other. There are many issues related to these flows, from possible taxation of the money to uh, high fees from intermediaries to potential... Uh, another thing with remittances is mainly you're talking about transactions in at least two currencies. There might be many other currencies in the middle to the exchange rate uh, that migrants get. So to the point that we make sure that these are private flows and minimize uh, those intermediaries and, and, and the, the cost uh, to the migrants and their family, I think that that will lead to a better use of remittances and maximizing the potential of these flows. So Carlos, I mean, this is really interesting. And 
it, it brings me to your uh, recent paper that you've produced that I was lucky enough to have a look at uh, the other day, in which you look at the idea of remittance house owners and remittance house dreamers. And I mean, the idea of a remittance house is obviously quite, quite. An, it's a slightly, it's a slightly unusual concept, I suppose, for many people. So, could you give us a, a sense of, firstly, what what do we mean by a remittance house, and what are these two different categories of people, and how do you differentiate them from one another? So, people send money back home for many reasons, and one of the reasons that many people send money back home is to invest in real estate. Uh, which can be, you know, getting a house most of the, uh, the time, but it could also be about getting other assets such as land. And when we were interested in this this question about what kind of migrant actually invest in in, in houses and, and properties in their countries of origin through remittances, and which ones may not be able to, but really really want to. And and in this project, which is with my colleague uh, Paoli Bocagni from the University of Trento. Uh, we did a big survey of Ecuadorian and Indian migrants in London, Milan, and Madrid in order to ask traditional questions such as why uh, these people buy a house, what kind of factors affect you know, whether someone uh, gets a house. But probably the, the main contribution of this study is not that there has been a lot of focus already on people investing back home uh, with remittances, but we put a lot of emphasis in looking at those people that we call remittances house dreamers. So those that would really like to buy a, a, a house back home, but actually for some reason have not done so. And we wanted to see whether it's, it's, it's a capital reason, right? They don't have the money and they cannot invest back home yet. So they might do it in the future. We might wanted to, wanted to see whether this was just an idea of buying a home, but you know, it was not something that they were going to act at least uh, in, the, in the short term. So the main message is that in addition to the story is that in addition to focusing on those that are actually uh, investing back in their home country to remittances in order to buy houses, we should also look at those people that have not invested yet, but it's that uh, the group that we call dreamers, people that really want to in the future. And I mean, I, so I think one of the other things that, you know, that, that what we were just talking about with Carlos does is, is it takes us quite some distance from this kind of cliche of remittances being, you know, all about small sums of money sent by relatively low income people to support impoverished people. Um, when we're talking about buying a home, I mean, we're, lo- we're looking at really large sums of money as well. So, I mean, just overall, could you give us some sort of sense, Dilip, of the sort of sums of money that are transferred globally, giving us a sense of the kind of the overall economic effects of those? Sure. Well, you know, the amount of money sent uh, tends to be small, but it is it is uh, very frequent. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we have heard of uh, people sending money on a weekly basis, but quite regularly when people get paid. So once a month sending money home is quite uh, normal. And uh, uh, those small small uh, sums of money, let's say $100 or $200, or in the case of richer uh, recipient economies like, let's say, Mexico, maybe $300 to $400, um, sent like by a migrant over 12 months suddenly adds up to a few thousand dollars. And then when the money is sent by uh, a few hundred million migrants, uh, migrant workers, then suddenly the amounts rise up to billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars. So the latest count 
in 2022, we expect remittances to low and middle income countries to reach $630 billion. This is only for low and middle income countries, does not include countries like the UK, which also receive remittances. Now, $630 billion of remittances, compare that with uh, lower than that uh, amount of foreign direct investment. So remittances actually are now larger than the flow of foreign direct investment to low and middle income countries, excluding China. And uh, uh, we knew that remittances were already three to four times larger than all development aid, official aid that goes to low and middle income countries. So, Carlos, I wanted to come to you now about something. So this this goes back to the early days of me working on the Migration Observatory in the days when we were lucky enough to have you as part of the team. Um, and you did a load of work on remittances for us then. And one of the things that stood out to me, which even though the data was a bit flaky, was that there was this very strong possibility that the UK was actually a net receiver of remittances. And to me, that just seemed crazy at the time I couldn't understand how that was feasible but so could you just explain a little bit about how well if and how wealthy countries that people travel to for work can end up as actual as net receivers of remittances well I think first of all it's important to highlight again that there's a lot of uncertainty related to the data and we don't know if, if there is a net receiver in the UK or not. But one thing I guess we can assume is that the UK receives a lot of money uh, in, in, in remittances uh, every, every year. And there's a concept of what we call reverse remittances. And these are essentially money that is coming uh, from households in what you would call, call traditional countries of origin to their migrant uh, relatives. And, and this is just to support uh, that migrant in the in the destination country. I have to confess, I myself have been a, a net receiver of remittances for many years from my household, from my parents, right? That they were supporting me when I was young, you know, and didn't have a proper job and so on, living in the U.S. and, and in the U.K. So it's money that is flowing uh, to support uh, the migrant. And of course, when you think about countries such as the U.K., which the stock of migrants is going to be uh, that large, that will accumulate across uh, across uh, across the time and across migrants, and you will, not, will end up with a large amount of money being received uh, by the country. So, while the data is certainly uncertain, it's not completely clear if that is the case. Um, and in fact, Dilip's team puts a lot of work in trying to to get this data correct, but it's but it's difficult. Uh, we can say at least that the UK is a large receiver of remittances, that receives a, a lot of money every year, and this is largely re related with families in the countries of origin supporting uh, their family members here. One aspect related to that also is about how do we see migration. A lot of these families might see migration as an investment, and while the migrant is having a difficult time in, in the destination country, it is worth uh, supporting that migrant because let's say if that person becomes unemployed for a short period of time, you expect that you expect that person uh, to find a job at some point later on and potentially to pay back the households, those remittances that they are uh, sending. You've raised this point, Carlos, which I think is really important about the, 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 the slightly, well, the challenging nature of data collection uh, about remittances. And so, Dilip, I mean, 
you obviously do a lot of work on this. So could you explain a little bit about those challenges, about why it's so difficult to collect data on remittances? And maybe give us a bit of information. I understand that there are some changes or some some efforts by uh, by banks, central banks, and by by national statistical organisations to try to overcome those. So um, so if you could help us out with that, and perhaps if you could also include in that some 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 thoughts on how well we capture this these flows of informal remittances as well. Thanks, Robert. Yes, um, indeed, um, remittances until recently were ignored as small change by everyone. Uh, and definitely the economic uh, policymakers did not pay enough attention to this kind of uh, small amounts of money sent by migrants. As you know, in most countries, uh, migrants are in general uh, treated as a residual anyways, right? And they are uh, foreigners. And if they happen to be undocumented somehow, then forget about them, right? You don't even know how to treat them. In, in fact, uh, undocumented migrants are ignored by not only the host com- communities, but also by the, the origin communities. They don't want to say their people have left. So they fall through the cracks. Now, if there is an undocumented migrant, uh, in fact, I spent some time in the UK. I was a visiting professor at uh, one of the universities and uh, I had difficulty opening a bank account there. Um, so uh, if, if, if a college professor uh, with a PhD has difficulty opening bank account, forget about undocumented migrants. Then what do they do when they send money? They find ways to send money because in fact, many of them migrated in the first place just to be able to send remittances. That was the reason for them to cross the mountains and the seas and risk their lives. So they will find ways to send money, and they do. And uh, in fact, uh, often a very common way of sending money is, um, you know, you wait until you go home and you carry a lot of cash with you, currency notes with you. Or you find someone who is going home uh, near your place, and then you uh, request that person to carry the money with you. In many parts of the world, including in Europe, money is sent often with bus drivers. All of this is legal, by the way. And then there is the so-called unregistered ways of sending money, which is frowned upon by regulators, which is the hawala channels, uh, which is uh, you call a friend here, you go to the merchant or somebody here and say that here is uh, 100 pounds. Um, could you call your brother or your agent on the other side to give the local currency? So. We have started under uh, NOMAD, the Global Knowledge Partnership on Migration and Development, and the World Bank taking the lead uh, in partnership with uh, IMF and Eurostat. We have started what we are calling Remit Start. It's the International Working Group to Improve Data on Remittances. We launched it about three months ago, and uh, now we have 45 countries uh, as, as members, plus the f- three or four organizations that I talked about, IMF, Eurostat, Universal Postal Union, and the World Bank. And um, we are uh, looking into improving the data on remittances on a bilateral basis from country to country, on a high-frequency basis in terms of monthly or quarterly data, um, in terms of different instruments, um, whether it is... um, cryptocurrency or mobile uh, phone remittances. Also, we are looking into um, informal remittances, estimation of informal remittances. And finally, 
we are looking into also what kind of migrants send money and how much and what kind of migrants may not send money so yes we have a, a lot of activity now to improve uh, uh, efforts to improve data on remittances wow i mean that really is a lot <laughs> um and uh, i i don't envy you such a massive task but it sounds fascinating and brilliant um look just to kind of wrap up um i wanted to just look at where we are in the world now it feels like we're entering a period of 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 global instability and i'm very conscious that um remittances may play a really important role in helping people to cope through that so i'd be interested to know i mean particularly looking at things like climate change and you know, the, the the war in ukraine the the looming global recession and such like what role do you think that remittances are going to play in helping people to cope and what thoughts do you have on on what might help those processes to be most effective so let's start carlos maybe if we could start with you for me the more challenging part of this equation is potentially less about the the monetary flows and more about the the migrant workers that will normally uh, be sending uh, the money uh, we think about the case of the war, you know, migration within, within Russia is, is a big thing. Ukrainian migration to other countries, including the UK, uh, for seasonal work and so on, uh, has been uh, affected. So one of the effects uh, that we can see is that the traditional sources of income for a lot of these uh, migrant workers uh, are, going to be, are going to be affected. So the, the money might be affected uh, because of that. Thank you very much, Carlos. And Dilip, if I, if I could ask you for your thoughts on this. Thanks, Robert. On Ukraine, the Im- immediate impact on Ukraine um, would be an increase in remittances to Ukraine. It, it can be attributed to the fact that uh, usually the male members uh, of the family are not migrating because of restriction that they are supposed to be there in in Ukraine uh, during the war. So it is women and children who are migrating. So there is a family connection already there, and therefore there would be more money sent. Now, while remittances to Ukraine are expected to go up, there would be an effect on remittances to Central Asian countries, mainly because they receive money from Russia and Russian economy uh, is facing sanctions and it is not going to do, it is, it is expected to not do that well. Remittances from Russia to uh, these countries in Central Asia would be impacted. To the rest of the world, we know there has been ripple effects. And we know that when countries have difficulty back home and families begin to face difficulties, like not being able to buy food or afford food, that's when remittances would go up. Now on climate change, That's a very, very interesting question. What would that do to migratory patterns uh, all over the world and seasonal migration all over the world? And for sure, in the long term, climate change is going to cause more migration. And that obviously means that there'll be more remittances. But really, the phenomenon to focus on is the migratory movements because the world is simply not prepared for large migratory movements. Dilip and Carlos, that that's a, a sober note uh, on which to end, but I think a really, really fascinating and interesting conversation, and I'm enormously grateful to you both.
You've been listening to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Jackie Broadhead. And I'm Robert Neal.